Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiki mai kakei mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance tēnei. Later on in the show, we hear about a bio-based glue that could replace existing formaldehyde-based glues in manufactured wood products. We also hear from Te Papa about the independent review they are commissioning for their natural history collections, which we discussed on the show last week. But first, they're small, brown and often overlooked. Many of us have never heard of them. But kākahi, or freshwater mussels, were once an important resource for Māori. They ate them and used the shells for everything from cutting hair to rattles on kites. These days, we're finally beginning to appreciate their importance as ecosystem engineers. This week, 200 kākahi were welcomed to a new home in Wellington's Zealandia Sanctuary, This pioneering translocation involves two species of mussels collected from two lakes near Wellington. Lake Wairarapa is part of the rohi of Ngāti Kahununu. Lake Kohangapiripiri, one of the Tuparangarahu lakes at the entrance to Wellington Harbour, is in the rohi of Taranaki Whanui. I recently joined an enthusiastic group of Taranaki Whanui Whanau, along with staff from Greater Wellington Regional Council and Zealandia Sanctuary at Lake Kohanga Piripiri to collect kākahi for translocation. Despite the cold wind, Taranaki Whanui trustee Holden Hōhaia is one of the keen people willing to brave the water. You looking forward to going in? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. Feeling the mud under my feet, kākahi in between my toes. Have you collected them before? Never. Did you know anything about them before this project? Not a hell of a lot, not really, but just since I've been involved in the project, started learning about them over the last couple of months. Yeah. Holden is not alone. I think it's fair to say that most of us here are only just learning about kākahi or freshwater mussels. Today is the second of two trips to collect kākahi to be moved to a new home in the middle of Wellington City. Kia ora, I'm Therese McLeod. I belong to Taranaki Wānui. Now, you were out at Lake Wairarapa yesterday? I was with Ngāti Kaununu to get the kākahi out of Lake Wairarapa. It was a, a, a powerful experience. I've never met kākahi before. They weren't part of my family's diet. We didn't live in areas near them, but it, I fell in love with them yesterday in that lake. Did you know anything about them before? Nothing about them before, never heard of them before. Until about three weeks ago when this idea was sort of socialised amongst our iwi here and I heard about the programme of collecting them to take from Lake Wairarapa in Ka'ununu Territory, uh, from our lakes here in Parangarahu uh, and they're ultimately both joining each other together in Zealandia's Upper Dam. The person here who does know lots about kākahi or freshwater mussels is Amber McEwen. She's studying them for her PhD at Victoria University and it would be fair to say she is a bit of a kākahi fan. It's radiant. I think the kākahi is radiant. It's understated but glorious. 
it's all browns and greens, isn't it? But it looks like there's a million different different shades. And when you put it in the light, it shines. So how many species of freshwater mussels do we have in, in New, New Zealand? In New Zealand, we have three recently described species and one possibly extinct that I'm aware of. And are they common? Are they rare? They're a lot rarer than they used to be. Um, they used to be pretty much everywhere. You'd find huge beds of mussels in lakes and rivers. So in terms of their threat status, what are they comparable to? Uh, so both of the species that we're dealing with at the moment um, have got a more serious conservation status than little spotted kiwi and uh, North Island kōkako, just for example. So tell me about their life cycle, because I gather that's really quite curious. Yeah, it's amazing. And all freshwater mussels have this really amazing life cycle where they need fish. They require fish in order to be able to complete their life cycle. So the mum kakahi will brood her babies internally, and then when she's ready, she'll sort of sneeze them out of her shell into the water. And these little glochidia, they're these little animals that have got these sort of grabbing hooks, and they'll grab those hooks onto a passing fish, and they'll live on the fish for a couple of weeks, something like that, during which time they'll undergo a transformation into a juvenile kakahi. They turn into this little cocoon kind of thing and then drop off as a juvenile kakahi, and the, the fish will transport them away from the adults so they achieve dispersal, which is like a main thing that animals need to figure out how to do to disperse. So a passing fish for them is a bit like a passing bus. I guess so, yeah, yeah, a critical bus. And if it's not there, you die, basically. <laughs> so you've hitchhiked this ride to some new spot and then you let go of your fish, say goodbye, then what happens? Then you become a mystery to science, essentially. <laughs> so we, we know almost nothing about kakahi juveniles, about what they need, where they are. They're pretty much never seen outside of a lab. Yeah, we we mostly start seeing them when they're about sort of five to ten mils long, and even then it's very, very uncommon to see one in the wild. How big do they grow as an adult? It depends how old they get, I guess, Uh, and they can get up to 50 years old. The largest ones would be maybe the size of a medium-sized twirl or a small green shell mussel. So generally they're about the size of a a large turtle or large pippy. So the ones in the lake out here... You're finding mostly mature adults? This lake here might actually, and I need to do a bit more survey work, um, might be a very unusual lake and might actually have a viable population, including many different size classes, including juveniles. And it may have something to do with this lake being free of pest fish, which makes it pretty much unique. New Zealand. So they sound like real mystery animals to me. They really are, yeah. They're, they're a black box <laughs> organism. I mean, Echodella Aucklandica, which we collected from Wairarapa yesterday, is the, the rarer species of the two. I mean, we know they're a separate species. There's been genetic analysis done. We know that they coexist with the more common species in some cases, and we know a few places where they live. And apart from that, we know nothing about their basic biology, ecology, interactions with other, with other species reproduction, nothing, we just know nothing about them. And that's phenomenal for a species that's almost gone. It's, you know, an endemic animal to New Zealand and we know nothing about it and we're just sort of scrambling to learn about it while we wave goodbye at the same time. Hopefully not, though. Today's collecting expedition, though, is all about welcoming some kākahi that will soon be heading to their new home at Zealandia. To help with the move, there are lots of modern white plastic buckets and also some beautiful, freshly woven flax kite. Kia ora, I'm Alison from Radio New Zealand. Oh, tēnā koe, Alison, ngā hoia. How many right? Eight of right. Right, Jane, right. Who's your right? 
Can someone tell me about these beautiful kite that you're holding? Because they're, they're all different sizes and they've got different size holes in them. The bigger size holes, kites are for gathering big uh, mussels or something like that. Whereas for the little ones, they're quite designed for the kakahi little ones. These ones will be easier for the water to go in and out, so they'll still be fresh as they come out as well. So these are traditional design. Is this what you would have done back in the day? Yeah, so yes. these will be traditional for um, gathering any... Kaimwana. Kaimwana. Kumara. Yeah, Pumpkin. Yeah. It's like very a traditional basket of... Food sauce. Food sauce, yeah. <laughs> About half a dozen brave people are wading out into the water. They're wearing wetsuits or waders, and judging by the reaction, I think the water's quite cold. And they're each got a kite into which they'll put the mussels that they find. And it actually looks like they're finding quite a few, so I really don't think it's going to take very long. Time to catch up with Paul Atkin. He's Zelandia's CEO. We've got uh, permission to collect 150 animals from this lake here and to translocate them into the upper lake in Zealandia. Uh, as part of re-establishing that really special freshwater ecosystem, we're putting these animals back into it. They're a filter feeder, so they, they basically uh, freshwater engineers. They, they clean up the place. Now, what's the bigger picture that, that this, this part of? Because it's not just about the upper lake at Zealandia, is it? That's right, not at all. The Zealandia lakes essentially form the headwaters of the whole Kaifarafara water catchment and um, there's a really wonderful multi-stakeholder project going on at the moment that we've had running for about 18 months now to restore the entire water catchment, not just the freshwater systems in that catchment but actually the forest around it and the biodiversity in it. And of course putting these kākahi back into the upper lake in Zealandia is, is, is both a very real and symbolic um, start to that, that uh, whole clean-up of the catchment. It doesn't have scales, it doesn't have feathers, it's not a plant. It's, a, it's quite a different translocation for it you. It is, isn't it? And isn't that cool? And here come the kākahi. So how warm was the water? It wasn't too bad. Zishi, once you're in there, you're in, you know, it's all right. Plus with everyone watching, you don't want to make out like it's cold, you know. <laughs> so what was the process? You were just feeling around with just your toes? Just with your and feet, and then by the time you get, you get a couple, you realise you just do your, use your hands. Yeah, and just scoop your hand through this, this, the top of the mud because they tend to be sort of heading down into the mud. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're not of... very deep down? No, no, not at all. They're, all. they're all on the surface. Didn't take you very long? No, about, what, 15 minutes? We've got 150. The kakahi are counted out into three buckets. This water um, is a mixture of Zealandia water and Parangarahu water. So that's just spending some time um, acclimatising in this water at the moment. So it's um, for an animal that lives in water, it's a very big deal to go from one type of water to another type of water. It can be quite a shock. So um, we've brought water from Zealandia here today just to make the process go a little bit softer on them so they can um, get used to a mixture of water first and then they'll be transferred into a full Zealandia water for the trip back to the sanctuary. So they don't get long to acclimatise? We'll probably give them about an hour, which will be enough time to put their feet out and put their siphons out and have a wee filter and a wee taste and 
and just get used to it. Although it's been lost in recent years, Māori have had a long relationship with kākehi. It was a traditional food source. I mean, it wasn't the most popular food source because there were tastier options available. But as a kai for convenience, it was easy to gather on the go. I mean, you, were, you saw that. We were out there for, what, 10, 15 minutes, and we gathered enough to feed a, a reasonable-sized family. So, you know, good protein source. And, look, people say, oh, what about the taste? Well, you know, it's possibly all in how you garnish it and cook it. Um, we, we're definitely keen to re-establish it so that it's plentiful enough to be harvestable as a cultural food source for us. They seem to be a bit of a litmus test for the quality of fresh water, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I mean, I don't know. I'm still, I'm still sort of learning about that stuff myself. But I understand they're one of the best filtration systems in the world. I think a couple of them can filter a litre of water in less than an hour, and no doubt would would have contributed to the modi of our water, waterways being in balance all the time, you know. Unfortunately, that's not, not the case now, but, you know, hopefully we can re-establish kākahi in our waterways in Wellington to the point where, you know, the, the modi of our waterways does actually improve. Yeah. So you look like you've got a bit of a production line going on there. Yeah. Can you tell me what you're doing? We'll be grabbing the um, kākahi and then... I will be showering them. And you get a shower and a brush? Yes. <laughs> so you're getting them out of the bucket? Yes, and then we're putting them into a new bucket. So what's with the brushing and the showering? To remove as much as we can of the organisms living on the outside of them. Algae, tiny invertebrates. So you just don't want to take any hitchhikers with you? We'd rather they stayed here, yep. So this translocation today, that's a bit of an experiment? It is, yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of an adaptive management experiment, I suppose. So we hope to help kākahi in the next decade or so in lots of different ways um, now that we've realised how much trouble their populations are in. So one of the ways that we can hopefully help kākahi is by translocating them to new environments, um, like Zealandia, where people can learn about them, but also perhaps translocating them into places where they would historically have been found but have been extirpated, which is... Um, local extinction based on past events, which wouldn't take much if you just have one big pollution spill in an area that's um you know that will do for all the kakahi, and without their fish hosts, well with a, a lack of of migratory galaxids, which is the wave-based species, to carry them back into those habitats after the spill, for example, um, they can't get there on their own. So we um we can help them do that by translocation. So we need to learn how translocation works and how we can make it work for the kakahi. Um, because we haven't really done that before in New Zealand. Um, we haven't had a translocation that's been intensively studied. So that's, um, that's what we'll be doing at Zealandia. So you collected 50 animals from Lake Wairarapa yesterday. Yes. 150 today from yes. Kohanga Piripiri. You're going to be following them at Zealandia. How are you going to we're do that? We're going to follow them at Zealandia, that's right. Yeah, well, that's something I really enjoy doing. Um, we're going to microchip them, so we'll attach little microchips to the outside of their shells. Um, and they're very, very small um, and very, very light and we just attached them with we're going to try a couple of different adhesives one is a marine cyanoacrylate and the other one is dental cement so we just attach them to the shell and then just put a little layer of adhesive over the tag so that it's smooth 
and we kind of contour it to the shell so it won't bother them. Um, and we'll be able to locate them again without bothering them. So, so you can just take up a microchip reader and wave it around? Is that's that right, that's exactly. Plan? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Are you going to be able to get any sense of whether they might breed? How would you monitor that? We've taken a bunch of before environmental DNA samples, so that's... Um, we just take either samples of water or sediment and, and try and detect traces of DNA in, in the environment. So it's relatively new for doing this. But we're hoping to be able to, tra- in the short term, to track their dispersal using that, um, if possible. Otherwise, we're going to do a little bit of um, fish sampling for the, the galax at the band of kokopu that lives up there. We'll do some fish surveying to see if we can find any evidence of parasitisation of the glaucidia. Uh, otherwise we'll just wait you know five ten years we might start seeing small muscles come into the system again it's sort of it's one of those things that that to build up a population will take a very 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 long time for those guys because they live so long kia ora amber and a big thanks to amber McEwen and everyone else helping to collect the kakahi kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou our Hei hōtaka e pānakia papa tuanuku, tangaroa, meirangi nui. I'm Alison Balance. This is our Changing World on RNZ National. And now, look around your house or at your workplace. Much of the wood you see is probably manufactured wood, made by gluing wood fibres together to make medium-density fibreboard or MDF, for example. Plywood is another familiar wood product, made by gluing thin strips together to make big, strong sheets. That glue has traditionally been a urea formaldehyde resin glue. But scientists at Scion have been working on a green bio-based alternative. I'm off to meet business development manager Rob Lay and chemist Warren Grigsby to find out more. So we're in the composites lab and historically we've been manufacturing a number of uh, different wood panels here. So we started off making plywood in the 1970s and 80s, progressed to particle board and then MDF in the 1990s. And ever since then it's been an R&D lab for different aspects of composite panel manufacture. So composite panel is anything that's not a solid block of wood, is that right? That's correct, yep. So throughout New Zealand there's a number of different operations which will take wood fibre, wood furnish. It's then glued together in a reconstituted panel and the the background behind these panels is that you can get these flat sheets of wood that a tree doesn't grow. So we have all these things that we already make. What is it that you're interested in doing? We're looking at responding to some of the changes around the world where there's a a move away from using some of the adhesives um, that traditionally um, hold these panels together and we're looking to do bio-based resins and the technology that we've developed here is 100% bio-based. All the components grow on a tree or a plant. We put them together as an adhesive. We work with lignans. Comes so a lignin from... is a part of a tree? Yeah, lignin is about 30% of the tree. Um, what does it, it do in the tree? It holds the wood fibres together. So uh, when you do pulp and paper manufacture, you want to get rid of the lignin. The lignin is holding together the wood cells and you want to free them up to have the wood fibres Um, that you can then take forward as pulp and then ultimately paper and the residue is lignin that's been isolated from uh, a black liquor which is what you would get at Kinleith. Here in New Zealand the black liquor is burnt for energy but we'd like to harvest that black liquor, take the lignin out and add value to it. So the jar you're holding in your hand, what what have you got in that? This is the isolated uh, craft lignin, um, free-flowing brown powder 
Uh, lignin comes in one colour, it's brown, and um, we, we, we take this forward into our adhesives and we do, we do something a little bit special to it, but importantly for us it stays water soluble and we can process it through into the uh, wood fibre or the wood furnish to make the composite panels. What kind of things do you have to do to it to turn it into an adhesive? Because an adhesive is something that sticks things together, isn't That's it? That's right. Um, we combine the lignin with um, other plant-based components. Um, we're working with different proteins um, and starches. That often comes as uh, residual flowers. We don't use wheat flour. We use other cereal flours that are common here in New Zealand and, and globally. Some of these other ingredients are taken from cattle feed and the trick for us is to bring those three ingredients, the proteins, the starches and the lignans together in a, in a way that is very simple to manufacture the adhesive, but also a simple way to be able to put that adhesive on the wood furnish. So in the lab, what do you end up doing? Is this like cooking and you're just trying different recipes of how you put the things together? Yeah, in a sense, it's, um, it literally is kitchen cooking. But it's a little bit more sophisticated than that. A few years ago we had to work out how to bring these individual plant components together in a way that it would hold together. So while we would do things in a, in a sense that we're, it's very similar to what you might do in a kitchen or a restaurant, the reality is that uh, we're using very complicated chemistry in a very simple way to deliver the components of that adhesive um, onto the fibre to stick the wood fibre together. There's a quite a global trend in terms of moving away from fossil-derived uh, materials in the built environment. Uh, we can't get away from them for everything, but within the wood panels sector, um, the dominant adhesive is urea formaldehyde, 90-something percent of wood panels. And you know the, the concerns there came out of formaldehyde emissions originally, but that's, you know, that's parallel with the desire to move to more renewable content as well, uh, you know, moving into a, a fossil-free or low-carbon future. So you know, there are some very big brand owners that we've been working with uh, on this product and, and I'm you know, hopeful that that's where it will move. So from their point of view, what do they need these new adhesives to do? Fundamentally, they have to perform the same as the existing, so that's the, the first benchmark. And so for performance, that means not only in the manufacturing environment, but also in, in the end use, and, and for them, end of life is, is becoming more important um, factor in performance as well. Cost is always an issue. There's always been a discussion with bio-based or renewable alternatives as what is a green premium someone might be prepared to pay. Some of the conversations are now changing to what is the green investment that can lift this technology to a point where it is more of a commodity and can be on a par with those technologies that have benefited from something like decades of market and technical optimisation. So it's, it's trying to play catch-up. And I presume they don't want to change their manufacturing methods either. For us and what we've got to so far, we've, we've really demonstrated that we're quite compatible with existing infrastructure, both in the adhesive you know, manufacturing, so the chemical manufacturing systems that, that we can integrate with, and also in the board manufacturing systems. So we've done some very big-scale trials that have been quite nerve-wracking, but actually um, got out the other side of those and demonstrated that we can work with those existing uh, manufacturing systems without any substantive change that requires a whole lot of capital investment. Now we're standing in your lab, there's a whole lot of things in front of us, do you want to explain what they are? Because they're quite large. 
starting off with uh, plywood, you know, this is a, a fairly common uh, construction material in New Zealand. There's an increasing move towards using plywood in interiors as well, and, and so that, that's where the attraction for this bio-based adhesive comes in. Uh, in the interiors use and this big stack of sheets here uh, was an industrial trial we, we ran in New Zealand and successfully produced plywood we've used in, in some of our own internal um, refurbishments here at Scion it's an easy test bed so if we did have a problem you know we can uh, we can obviously deal with that um, before it's in any customers hands and the next stage this other big stack next to you here is fiberboard or an MDF type product which we ran at even bigger scale which is why there's a bigger stack and, and this is only a small amount of what we actually produced um, that was another level of, of, of scale again so multiple tons of uh, adhesive and uh, of fibre and, and running on a, on, a, on a very big production plant uh, for a day and so that, that was an extremely important step in, in our development and you know, a really good outcome in the end. So we're not about saying you know, this is the only formaldehyde free solution there is out there, this is a, the only renewable solution there is out there and it happens to be formaldehyde free. You mentioned end of life before, what's the difference between industry standard MDF board at the moment now and one of these new ones. So and that's you know it's a big challenge for a lot of uh, building materials, furniture, and the like. What to do with it at the end of its life? You know we see a point of difference in our bioadhesive-based panels in that you know, they're essentially vegan. These panels can be disposed of in a, literally a composting operation. If we really wanted to compost the wood component and chip it down, we can easily take these boards break them down and reconstitute them back into more uh, wood products. Was it really exciting to see these products being produced from having had those original ideas however long ago and working away in your lab to actually seeing it on this kind of scale? Yeah, I have a long legacy in research and science and when we first got into making these adhesives um, I had to go from concept and idea on a piece of paper, um, the whiteboard, to into the lab to develop all the elements of the technology and then the slow painful process of putting them all together then the nerves and the anticipation of seeing that being all reproduced again at ton scale and then the relief of seeing these panels coming out of a production line it's been a, a great journey for us yeah, well, I can certainly uh, reinforce Warren's comments. It was quite entertaining to see the relief, the physical relief, the first time we ran this product on a full mill-scale uh, operation. And I think it's very easy for science to stay at the lab bench and be comfortable there. And this, you know, this is the, really the job of, of Scion and, and our researchers is to make an impact and to take things to scale. And that's scary. Thanks, Rob. That's Rob Lay, and we also heard from chemist Warren Grigsby, and they are both at Scion. Finally tonight, we heard from scientist Trevor Worthy last week. He was concerned about news of a proposed restructure at Te Papa, especially the impact this might have on the museum's biological collections, which are a national treasure. Te Papa has just announced it is going to undertake an independent international review into its collections before it makes any decisions, and in light of that, we catch up with Director of Strategy and Performance at Te Papa, Dean Peterson. Obviously, we're going to continue on with the natural history collections. It's really an important part of what we have here at Te Papa. If you're asking about what we're doing with the uh, collection managers involved in natural history and the uh, conservators, 
we're actually putting our decision on hold and we're going to go into a, a review of that. So the press statement that I've seen says the museum will proceed with bringing its collection managers and conservators into a single collections care team, so you're going ahead with that. Do you know yet whether that will have any impact on the numbers of staff? We don't at this point. Yes, we are putting the two teams together as one unit. In fact, that's done by quite a few museums around the world, so this isn't earth-shattering in that regard. The numbers, we are in a, in a position now where we're, we're looking at how we're going to care for the collections in the best way possible, and we're going to come out with an answer from that once we've, uh, once we've done this review. Can you tell me a little more about the review that you're going to initiate? Yeah, so there's actually two pieces to it. Um, the first is an internal review, and we're looking at the collection managers and the, and the conservators, as I've mentioned, looking at their roles, their accountabilities, how they're connected, just the standards of collection care that we do now and maybe how we should move into the future with that. We're also going to look at benchmarking uh, to Papa against other, other museums around the world. So this will be an international benchmarking done internally. We're also, we've been asked by the board, the board is commissioning a external or international expert review panel that will look at just how we go about working on our, in, in particular, our natural history collections. So that'll be done by an independent international panel. Do you know yet what the terms of reference for that review might be, who's going to set them, and will those international review members consult with the New Zealand and overseas users of the collection, i.e. people like Trevor Worthy who've been raising concerns about the future of the collections? I don't have all that information yet. We're right at the beginning of putting this together. Terms of reference-wise, we haven't, we haven't nailed those down. We don't have the members um, you know, selected yet. We've got a number of people that have been suggested for this, which all look really good. They're all connected, obviously, to uh, science related to natural history collections, so that's, that's happening. But I can't really go into much more detail yet on that. One of the things that's been discussed in the media in the last couple of weeks is the idea of moving some or all of the natural history collections to South Auckland. Is that still on the table? It's still something that we're, we're looking at uh, in terms of how and when. There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of interaction that has to happen before we even come close to that. And we're probably looking, you know, even if we were able to push the button today, it's a, it's a five-year horizon um, type of type of situation. So we're a long ways from, from doing anything with that. And we have, we have no direct uh, confirmation on, on any level, really, from government on moving that. What would be the reason from moving them from their present site in Wellington? There's a couple of reasons there. Obviously, the seismic risk reason. Uh, also, accessibility. So obviously, if you're in Wellington, you can, you can access collections quite, uh, quite heavily. But in a higher population area, uh, it kind of makes sense. The accessibility will also increase. What's the seismic rating of both Te Papa's main building and the satellite Natural History Collections building in Torrey Street? Uh, I don't have that info on me, but I know Te Papa's main building obviously was put on ground-based isolators and that very high code. Uh, Torrey Street facility is also very high code. Trevor Worthy last week speaking on Our Changing World was concerned about potential damage during the move to the more than a million specimens I think you have in the natural history collections. Is it worth the risk of trying to move them? 
Well, the other part that you, that you need to realize here is what we've done in the natural history in the taxonomic collections as a nation is we've, we've taken into account a number of different collections around the country and mitigated against quite a bit of this risk with keeping the collections in different zones. And we would, we would continue to do that. So we, aren't, we would never move all of the taxonomic collections up to Auckland because then we would be putting you know, all our eggs in one basket, so to speak, with some of those collections. So there's a large amount of work that has to be done, what moves and what doesn't, and what impacts that would have on other existing collections around the other 27 institutes within New Zealand that have taxonomic collections. Are you still considering splitting the collections? I know that Te Papa CEO Geraint Martin mentioned in an interview with Catherine Ryan on RNZ that there was discussion with Niwa about them taking the fish collection, perhaps? We're talking with Niwa about how we could better collaborate together. They wouldn't be taking our collection at all. In fact, what we're looking at there is having a joint facility where we both have our collections. The two collections we're talking about there that could be joined up, which would make a lot of sense, is Niwa's marine invertebrate collection, which is uh, around 300,000 collection items and our large marine vertebrate collection. So having that collection in one zone with the proper experts from Tapapa and the proper experts from Niwa makes a lot of sense. I'm interested in that idea of taking a national perspective because back in 2015 the Royal Society Te Aparanga produced an expert report on national taxonomic collections in New Zealand and one of the points they raised on which is on page 49 of the report, was the vulnerability of national-scale interest to individual institution decisions. And they raised the point of Te Papa back in 2013-14, first having that idea of moving to some off-site storage in Auckland. You may not be aware of this, but I'm the chair of the National uh, Systematics and Taxonomic Collections Working Group, which has come about from that report, actually, as part of the coordination of all of the collections around around the country. Um, and so we are absolutely taking that into account. And that's that's why we wouldn't be moving our full collections anywhere, um, because, for instance, if there is a large insect collection up in the Auckland area, we wouldn't want to move all of our insect collection up there also. Trevor Worthy was also concerned about the lack of consultation with outside experts so far, who he says are the main users of the Te Papa collections. Are you planning to consult with them as part of this review? Yes, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's part of the reason we're, we're drawing back on this. I think not all uh, organizations, when they go through a change process, when they send out their proposal, take the comments back into consideration. We've done that, I think, in a really, really good way. And what's come out of that is obviously we need to step back one stage and do this analysis before we, uh, before we do anything further. One of Trevor's big points too was the the expertise associated with the collection. So he made the point a number of times that the collections really need to be looked after by people who are experts in the field who understand the collection so that the collections can continue to be a living and growing thing. Yes, I totally agree with that. That's very important. And I think one thing that's come across loud and clear with our uh, comments from from staff and and also external uh, individuals is they absolutely care for these collections. It's been a bit emotional, but I think you know that the good the good side of that emotion, of course, is the is the degree of care and the and the amount of goodwill that's out there to to keep these collections in their pristine shape.
Thanks, Dean. That was Dean Peterson from Te Papa. And that's all we've time for tonight. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, you'll find us at RNZ Science on Facebook and Twitter. Our webpage is always worth a look. You'll find all the audio, and there are lots of photos this week of Kākehi. rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. Don't forget, you can also subscribe to Our Changing World, the podcast, in all the usual places. I'm back next week, but for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marie. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.